tied up here. Jonathan, just stay right there in a minute. Y'all good? I'm going to use them in a minute to do something. They don't know it yet, but I'm going to do that. All right, boys and girls, if y'all want to head downstairs, I think Miss Leanne's got a lesson for y'all. All right, so as they're heading downstairs, we've been in a series. Get rid of this gum here. I don't want to be chewing on gum while I'm talking. We've been on a series about ancient paths where we've been talking about how important it is to find the right path in life. Many, many people are not on the right path, and we've looked at that, and so there are some things that help us to get on the right path. And the whole series has really been predicated on this kind of verse that we find in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Go to that next slide for me, guys. It says, This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look, for ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in and you will find rest for your souls. And we've established that, that the whole concept here is that the ancient paths are the, are the biblical values, the good ways, the right ways, God's ways. Ultimately, God's ways for living is what we're after when it comes to this idea of the ancient path. Now, we looked at the first four of those. The first one was work, sacrifice, integrity. We looked at last week, wonder. And so follow me along, guys, back there. We got, we're training them up back there. Got a little David back there, so he's... All right. <clears throat> so the fifth installment of the ancient path is the concept of simplicity. And so I was going to read you the lyrics from a little tune that, um, that some of you may know that I think will kind of get us started in this idea of simplicity. But then I thought, why would I just read the lyrics of this tune when I throw something like this on our very talented musicians who did not know this until just a few minutes ago. So I want you to just hear just part of this song, all right? Here you go. If you do this, it'll help you some sunny day. Oh, yeah. Well, take your time, don't live too fast. Troubles will come, and they will pass. You'll find a woman, oh yeah, and you'll find love. And if you do, there is someone, oh. For the rich man's gold All that you need now Is in your soul And you can do this, oh baby If you try All I don't want for you, my son Is to be satisfied Yeah. 
That's pretty good just to throw it on them like that, huh? And it, some of you may have heard that song. It's a Leonard Skinner song. Be a simple kind of man. And so even, even Leonard Skinner, which is by no means a gospel group, okay, wrote a song. And it, the, the idea here was his mom's writing him this song. You boys are good. If you want to head down, I ain't going to throw another one on you, even though it's like karaoke here. The, uh, is look, we all know that there's value in simplicity. And a big part of the ancient path is simplicity, all right, and getting back to what is simple. Now, I pulled up from the dictionary the definition of simplicity to help us kind of get a frame of reference here, and look what it says. Now, these are all just, just kind of getting us in the, in the mindset of what we mean by simplicity, all right? Freedom from complexity, intricacy, or division. And how many of us need some freedom from complexity and division and complications in our life? Absence of luxury or pretentiousness. Wasn't there a lot of pretentiousness in this world today? People striving for the rich man's gold, lusting after that, luxury, and that's all they want. Freedom from deceit or guile, sincerity, alertness, naturalness. Man, I don't know about you, but certainly we could all say simplicity by this definition is something that we should strive for. How many of us have thought in our mind, what if we could go back to a simpler way? Back when things were simple. Now, this is challenging because the world is progressing and progress is a part of life, but there is this desire to go back to what is simple. Now, simple is not easy, but it's manageable. And so as we think about this idea about getting back to God's ways, the ancient past, if you will, I believe that simplicity and simple things, becoming simple men and simple women in this sense, freedom, from the complexity and the division and the pretentiousness and the deceit or the guile and the rat race and, the, and having sincerity and alertness is what God wants for us. And this is very well illustrated in a story in the Old Testament, which is what we've been doing as we look at these ancient paths because these, these, these writings from the Old Testament are very ancient compared to some of us, right? And they're from a long time ago. And so we're going to look at a story it's not really a story. It's just a, it's a prophecy that's, that's very unique in the Bible. And so I want to take just a minute. It's from Micah chapter 6, all right? And so we're going we're gonna to learn about simplicity, but we're going to take like a little pause, you know, a commercial break, so that I can teach you something that you may not know and will help you, especially my younger folks and maybe the older who haven't been listening, to help us understand the Scripture. So in Micah chapter 6, the prophet is going to use... A rhetorical device. Now, some of you who are educators or English people understand what a rhetorical device is. It's, it's, it's using something that's, that's not necessarily literal to communicate. And we do this all the time when we tell stories or we tell fables or we use analogies or paradox. All these things are literary devices. Well, the, the writer Micah inspired by God, uses an, a literary rhetorical device here where he pretends, all right, that there's this courtroom trial going on, okay, because he wants to communicate a point. Just like as a teacher, oftentimes we use examples and we use um, stories and we use plays and we use different things to communicate a point. Well, the prophet here, inspired by God, uses a little, a little kind of scenario where he kind of pretends like there's a courtroom 
And God and the people of Israel are there. So I want you to understand this is the context. Now, why do I want to pause and tell you that? Because so many people say, well, do you believe the Bible's true? Well, you don't believe this. You don't believe that. And somebody asked me this week, they said, well, is the Bible true? Well, absolutely, I believe it's true. Is it literal? Well, most sometimes. Sometimes it's not. I mean, and so what we have to do is we have to learn to rightly divide the word of truth so we can have understanding that we can communicate to people. Because no one believes 100% the Bible literally. Because there's not Christians running around there with one arm and one eye when Jesus said what? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Why? Because a person with any intelligence realizes that Jesus was, was using some over-the-top language to communicate a point. So it's not literally true, but it doesn't make the truth any less. And so we have to approach this as wise believers. All right? In a world where people are questioning the authority of the Scriptures and looking at that, we have to be sensible enough to understand so that we can declare what the truth is and how to understand it. And this is what happens a lot of times in the Old Testament. People have trouble sometimes with the Old Testament, but if they really could understand what's being said, why it's being said, how it's being used in this particular time, it often will bring about a lot of clarity. So commercial's over. Let's get back to what does this device, this little prophecy tell us about simplicity? All right, look here. It says, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Again, the courtroom. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. Obviously, mountains and hills can't literally be called as witnesses in the courtroom. He's making a kind of a point here, right? So everything, the mountains, the hills, all of this is free. Everything is here before us. What is your complaint? Then it says, oh, and now, oh, mountains, listens to the Lord's complaint. So there's an implication here that they don't have a complaint. And we've done this as parents, right? You ever, you ever as your parent, as a parent, told your kid, what do you have to say about that? What, what you, you, do you have anything you want to say to that? Knowing good and well that what? There's really nothing that better be said to that. And so this is, again, just part of how language is used. So he says, so bring your complaint against the Lord, people of Israel. There's obviously an implication. There are no complaints. And so he says, okay, well, now I'm going to tell you what my complaints are. All right? He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. And I can't help but when I hear this, I think about interactions with our kids or people. You know, what, what do you want? Answer me. Answer me with, you know, with frustration, right? And you get a, a sense here that God is somewhat frustrated through this prophecy at his people because of the things they have done. And then he says, for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. So in these two verses, the, the prophet sets up this stage of a courtroom, all right? And it's God on one side against his people making a case for why are these people not walking in the right ways, why are they not following, if you will, the ancient paths and doing what they're supposed to do? This is the context of Micah 6. And this is a universal problem, right? God's people who are not following in God's ways. Ultimately, this is the whole story, the narrative of the Old Testament. 
generation upon generation, and it has only continued even unto this day. And so this is, while this is happening in a specific time and place, there is a universal application here is as a people of God, how are we not or when we're not walking in the ways that he wants us to? And some of the things that God brings up that he did for them have some application for us. Look at all the things that we find in those two verses. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from slavery. I sent help to you. I blessed you when others tried to curse you. I did everything I could to teach you. I was faithful to you. Man, as I was reading that, I was like, wait a minute. God's still in that business. Think about what he's done to bring you to this place. What has he brought you out of? Where could you be today if God hadn't brought you to where you are? Think about people that you knew from your past who have ended up in much, much worse places. But he brought you through. He redeemed you from slavery. You know, redemption is the idea that you've been purchased Look, if you're a believer, he's redeemed you from slavery to sin. How many people do we see who are enslaved to drugs and alcohol, sexual addiction, greed, lust? I mean, literally bound up, don't want to be that way, but continue down that path. If you're a believer, you've been redeemed from that. Look, he sent someone to help them. Man, how many ways has God sent people on our path to help us? I think about my parents. I think about some of you, my friends. Think about mentors, ways that God sent people to help me. Blessed me when others tried to curse me. Look, there's plenty of people trying to curse you out there. They're trying to steal from you. They're trying to cheat you. They're trying to get you down. But guess what? God blesses you when others try to curse you. He did everything he could to teach them. And he's done a lot to try to teach me. Think about all God has done to teach you. The people he's put into your life. Just the simple ways to have the intelligence to be able to read, to learn all the things, and he's faithful. Man, so what God did for them, I think all of us could say, he's done that for me. He's done that for humanity. That's what God does, right? And so so in this courtroom, if you will, this literary device where he's trying to teach us something, he says, these are all the things I've done for you. For you literally, for me literally, but for his own people. He's offered blessing instead of curse, brought us out, redeemed us. And so he's making a pretty strong case that he's for us, right? Now, in the next little part, in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7, let's look at what they offered, okay? They said, well, what can we bring to the Lord? Now, before we read this, in the language, there's a little bit of sarcasm here, okay? So basically, it's hard to get this in English, But the way it's written is they're almost kind of sarcastically in this little scenario responding. And so if you know that, it'll make a little more sense to you. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring Him burnt offerings? Should we bow before the God Most High with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer Him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? So you see, what they're doing is they're responding in a way oftentimes that we respond, all right? They're like, I mean, what do you want from me? I mean, really, what do you want, God? Do you want everything? You want this? So this is the way he's communicating that. Do you want everything? 10,000 rivers of oil? Do you want everything I've got? Do you even want my firstborn son? So you get the pride and the sarcasm that, that the, he's portraying of these people. But ultimately... What they really offered to God 
in response to all he had offered to them was just a few things that I believe are universal. Not specific, but behind them is something universal. Look what, he offered, what they offered back to God. Whether it was sarcastic or not, they said, we'll bow down with burnt offerings. We'll sacrifice a thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. We'll even sacrifice our firstborn son to pay for our sins. Notice that all of the things that they are offering to God could be categorized by religious activity. You see, God's saying, look, I've done all of this for you. I've blessed you. I've provided for you. I've done this. And all they have really offered to God at this particular point is a bunch of religious activity. Now, very, very important here, whether you're watching this online, if you're listening to this later, or if you're here, understand very clearly that God is making it very clear through the prophet that religious activity alone is not what he's after. That's not a sufficient response to all that he's done. Now, this is very difficult because a lot of our activity is religious in nature and there is value to that, okay? But notice that it doesn't matter how much it is or how much it costs us. If, if the goal is just religious activity, it's not a proper response to what God has done. And this is a question that people throughout history have asked. What is it that God really wants from us? And see, that's what this whole projection, this whole narrative, this story of the courtroom is. What does God really want from man? And if you're honest, what does God really want from you? What does God want from a human being? What is he asking of us? What does he require? Well, Micah 6, 8 tells us, in the simplest of terms, the simplified version, which is what we're after today. It says, no, O people, and no is the response to not all these rams, not all this oil, not your firstborn son, not your religious activity. I'm not interested in that. O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. Simplified version, what does God want? Number one, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It doesn't get any simpler than that. What does God require of me? To do right. Step one, he wants us to do what's right. Now, not... The, the other translations say act justly, and that's a good way of saying it as well. Justice, what's right, what's fair. Now, you want to know what God wants from us? He wants us to do what's right. That's what he wants human beings to do, to do what's right. We see a lot of wrong in the world, and so we can't solve all of the other problem, people's problems. You see, a lot of times what we do is we think about other people's problems so that we don't have to work on our own problems. And so I want us to focus, and myself as well, not on what other people are doing, but for me, how do I do what is right? This is what God wants for me. Now notice he doesn't want us to do what's right, or he wants us to do what's right, not what's easy. Too many of us want to do what's easy. And sometimes right is not easy. Sometimes right is easy. And listen to this. The more you do what's right, especially young people, 
the more you do what's right, the easier doing, what, doing what's right gets. Because you align your life in a way that doing what's right becomes easier. But it's not always easy. Doing what's right, not what's best. Some people want to do what's best, not what's right. The problem is best for who? Best for you? Best for him? Best for them? Best for this group, that group? That's why it's so hard and so elusive to try to do what's best. Because doing what's best may be something different. The best for this one may not be the best for that one. It's better for that one. It's worse for this one. No, do what's right and let God handle what's best, what's comfortable. Do what's right, not what's comfortable. This is hard, right? Because we want to be comfortable. It's much easier to do what's comfortable. Do what's right, not what's profitable. How many people have sacrificed what's right to do what's profitable? I meet people all the time who make their decisions based on what's profitable. And they fall back and they say, well, it's just capitalism. It's just the way it works. Let me tell you, friend, you're called to be a Christian, not a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. I think it's the best system. It rises people up and gives more people a chance. But let me tell you this. When you allow capitalism to be your master, you have to start then doing what's profitable instead of what's right. And a big part of the mess that we're in in this world is that too many people in charge of companies are doing what's profitable instead of doing what's right. And as Christians, in our jobs, in our businesses, we should do what's right, not just what's profitable. Now, we got to be profitable, but we got to do what's right, not what's pleasurable. God's for us having pleasurable lives, good lives, abundant lives. But guess what? we got to do what's right over what's pleasurable. You think it was pleasurable for Jesus to contemplate going there? We know it wasn't because he said what? He said, Father, if there's any way, let's do this another way. But he knew he had to, and that was the right thing to do at that particular time. Now, here's the beautiful thing about all of this, okay? Is I'm learning more and more in my experiences in life that when we do what's right, over time, guess what? All these other things kind of fall into place because there's nothing wrong with easy. There's nothing wrong with best. Certainly nothing wrong with comfort or profits or pleasure. These are all God things. The difference is the devil is tricking people to think that you chase those no matter what's right. And then it becomes out of order. If you do what's right over time, all the other things fall into the right particular place. And so this is what God wants for us, to do what's right. Look, so many people are just not doing what's right. They're overcomplicating things. And they're using, we're using religious activity as a substitute for doing what's right. And I want you to understand, as plain as I can say this, it wasn't true back in the Old Testament and it's never been true. Religious activity is not a substitute for doing what's right. So much so that it's really more of an affront to God than it is any sort of help for you getting close to Him. You've got to do what's right. Some people say, well, how do I know what's right? How about this? Just start with what you know. There again. See, we all have these excuses 
well, I don't know what's exactly right. Well, Gary, again, that's just to get us off track. Do what you know is right and just keep doing that. Ask God to help you with what you don't know. Well, so-and-so is not doing right. Up, up, don't worry about so-and-so. Worry about you. Let God worry about so-and-so. Well, they, this, you see what I'm saying? All these are distractions to get you off of the main thing, which is for you and I, to do what God wants from us, which is to do what's right. Number two, what does God require of me? Now, you see how simple that is. Do right? Well, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy at all. Number two, what does God require of me? Love mercy. What's mercy? Okay, let's go back to the old dictionary so we're all on the same page. What is it talking about here? Mercy is compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender, an enemy, or other person in one's power. A lot of big words there. Good thing y'all are smart, right? Compassionate or kindly forbearance. Now, what is that word? Forbearance. Some of you, have you ever heard that word? Yep, some of you may have got a forbearance letter or applied for that or whatever, okay? But what is forbearance, okay? This is really important because it helps us understand what mercy is. And mercy is a very important concept in God's realm. Well, forbearance is abstaining from the enforcement of a right. Now, this is huge, okay? Because forbearance is a real big part of what mercy is. It's abstaining from enforcing your own rights. Now, I don't miss this, all right? Because our world is full of people who are screaming for what? Their rights. We all want our rights. But you've heard me say this before. What if we all wanted what is right? So much of our chaos in America would start to dissipate if people would quit clamoring for their own rights and strive for what is right. All right? But we do have rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? Y'all learned that in school? That we're endowed with what from our Creator with certain inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So we have rights, okay? We all have rights as Americans. We have rights as individuals, rights as children of God, created in His image, all these things like that. But forbearance is when we abstain from enforcing a right that we have on someone else. Now this is most perfectly illustrated in Jesus because He does what? He has the right to condemn us. Every single one of us in here has lied. And if you think you're not lying, you're lying now, all right? You lied, all right? We've cheated. Either we didn't work as hard as we should have worked, we stole, we didn't work, didn't give a full day's wage, or maybe we took something, we've had lustful thoughts, we've not done something. That was just, so every single one of us in here is a sinner, all right? That's just a given. And as a result of that, God is within His rights to say you are not worthy of holy perfection. He has that right. It's his deal. Just like in, in, when you're over your realm, you have the right to do what you want in your realm. In God's realm, he has the right to hold us to whatever standard. But he, in great mercy and forbearance, is not enforcing his right to punish us for all that we've done because of what Jesus did. Now, so that's what mercy is. What does God require of me? To love mercy. Now before I jump into a whole lot about this, I want us to understand that the love here is not 
ooey-gooey feelings, emotional kind of love. That's, that's a great kind of love, okay? And so it's not, I'm not discounting that. But the word here is the choice kind of love. And so you got to choose to love mercy if you want to do what God requires. A few questions that I ask myself that you may ask yourself. Do you love mercy? It's not really a hope you do. God requires this of those who are truly following him. But this will help us. Do I love mercy? Well, I guess myself. Do I love being compassionate? Do you choose to be compassionate to people? Or are you the person who wants everybody to get what they deserve? Because what they did. Be very careful. Don't become a person who's always wanting somebody else to get the book thrown at them. Because the truth is, you don't want the book thrown at you. Choose to be compassionate. A moment ago, just a few moments ago, someone walked into our facility. I'm just going to be as real as I can be right here, okay? Walked in this facility, looked like she just may have come out of rehab or something, but come from the hospital, didn't have any shoes on. Slurred speech, definitely seemed a little off. Would you say that's fair, Mr. Butterfield? Came in, just wanted some coffee, wanted a donut. And I wonder, what are our thoughts when we see that? I know what mine are, really. I don't know if I want to deal with this, maybe. I'm ashamed to tell you that. But if I'm honest, that's the truth. That, that, is my, that thought crossed my mind. Really, what's this going to lead to today? What bad choices did she make that brought her here? Now, thanks be to God that those thoughts didn't stay there. Because I saw that, and I said, you know what? I'm supposed to love compassion. I don't know what circumstances brought her to this place. And I'm thankful that some of our folks helped her get some coffee, gave her a donut, hopefully wished her well, as I was trying to be kind to you. And I wonder if all the rest, I don't know, because I and I'm not your judge by no means. But when something happens like that, in a thousand other ways, do you love compassion? Do you jump? to help those who are down and out? Or do you gravitate towards their getting what they deserve? Look, friend, that ain't what you want. You want to err every time on the side of compassion. Just trust me on this one. Let God worry about the rest. Now, I'm not talking about being foolish. And I'm not talking about enabling people, and I'm not talking about nonsense like that. I'm talking about being compassionate and loving compassion. Do I love to forgive others, or do I really do it reluctantly? Man, do they deserve it? I've met people, very unhappy people, who literally are upset that they have to forgive somebody. Why? Because they don't feel like they were punished enough for what they did. 
Look, God requires us to love forgiven people. Nothing better than a story of somebody who's down, out, messed up, and gets right. Do I love being kind to my enemies? Holy moly. Do I love abstaining from enforcing my rights? You see, this whole idea of mercy is a tough one. Now, it's easy in the little window with our friends, with the people who are like us, with the people who are on our team, with the people who have not wronged us. So we can stand over here and we say, yes, I love mercy. It's awesome. I'm a merciful person. But that's not the measure of it. Don't be deceived. The real measure of mercy is in the category of the people who did you wrong, who falsely accused you, who took from you, who hurt you, who made you feel bad, who are your enemies. Now, so this is hard. It's a lot harder, right? I mean, it's just, I mean it ain't easy over here. Show compassion to those who may not deserve it. I mean, we all want to show compassion to those who deserve it, but it's giving it to the ones that don't deserve it is where the real measure of our mercy is. It's tough. We won't get it right all the time. But with God's help, maybe we can get it right more of the time. And the ultimate demonstration of how much you love mercy is if you sacrifice yourself for the to and for the most merciful act ever done on this earth, which was what? Right there. See, if you love mercy, you want to bow at that cross. And you want to lay aside all your own pettiness, all your own brokenness that you know is there. And you want to offer God the best that you have for what he gave you. Number three, what does God require of me? Walk humbly with God. Simple, but it's not easy. Do right. Do what's right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. Now, real quick, because I'm running out of time here, what does it mean by walk humbly? I, I really just want to kind of approach it like this. It's really kind of what he's doing. What are we talking about? Walking. Living. You think it's an accident that the Bible over and over uses path, journey, walk as a metaphor for what we're doing with God. No, this is, this is our life. So you got one life to live. If you're lucky, you're going to get 80, 90, 100 years at the most out of this deal, okay? And so, so what does God want us to do? He wants us to live. He wants us to walk with Him. Go all the way back to the most ancient story of all, Adam and Eve. You remember what it was God wanted to do with Adam and Eve in the garden? To walk in the cool of the evening and just communicate and fellowship. See, that's what God wants. He wants you to be in connection with Him as you're walking through your life, whatever it is you're doing. And we all do various things. We have to because the world is full of various needs and places and all that stuff, but we're to walk. How do we walk? Humbly. Whew. Which is what? Hard because we're so full of pride sometimes. We're to walk live in a humble way, and really who? With God. What does God want from you? Number three, simply. He wants you to walk humbly with Him. He wants you to keep moving in your life every day, every day that you got. In a humble manner, stay connected to Him. A few questions. Am I walking 
in the right direction. Let's be honest. Don't, don't lie to yourself. I mean, when you look at your life today, we've been talking about ancient paths or whatever. Are you walking in the right direction or have you kind of gotten off of the right path? Are you going at the right pace? See, some people don't, I'm retired. I'm just going to kind of limp. I ain't going to rush along too much. What pace does God want you walking this life at? Are you humble? Proud? Arrogant? Modest? Courteous? Respectful? These are the things that God wants us to do as we're walking along this life. Notice, notice how there's no real religious activity here. Very important. Does your mind gravitate towards religious activity or do you focus on this and then let your religion flow from that? That's the right order. You see, do all of these things. Do what's right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. And then as you're doing that, whatever the religious expressions are that you see from the scriptures, they become sincere and meaningful. But however, if you get them all confused and you don't do what's required and you just think that religion and religious activity is going to substitute, it ain't going to work. What does God require of me? The simplified version. What does it say? Do what's right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. It's so simple. But it's not very easy. Because why? There's a thing in this world called sin. And while we're challenged to do what's right, we have a pretty strong pull to do what? What's wrong? And while mercy is what we should love, we can't help. We ought to offer justice to others. And while walking humbly certainly leads us in the right path, and it's what God wants, pride is real. Arrogance, self-sufficiency. And so we battle these things, and God knew that. And it's why he offered up an opportunity, a way for all of humanity to be able to follow the requirements through his son Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. And so as we partake of our communion today, we say this often, and we can't say it too often. How important this is. Because it really reminds us that while all of the doing right, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, all those things apart from Christ will make things better in the world, they don't exist without Him. Because no matter how hard we try, we cannot succeed without the forgiveness offered to us through Jesus Christ.
as we partake of these elements today, I want to challenge you to reaffirm your commitment to walk the path God has for you. Make a decision. If you're not going exactly in the right direction, maybe, maybe you, you're kind of generally going in the right direction, but you've kind of got off track because you've been distracted, which can happen to all of us. Make a commitment today that you want to realign yourself back to what he wants. Maybe you're not going in the pace and in the way that you should. I can't think of a better way to, you know, solidify a commitment like that than communion because it's what he did that allows us to be able to make those types of changes let's pray father we're so grateful for all that you do for us for the blessings of this life as we partake of these elements this bread wafer that represents your broken body this juice that represents your blood may we in sincere gratitude offer up what you require of us today to do what's right to love mercy and embrace it through your son Jesus Christ and to walk in a humble manner for your glory we ask this in Christ's name amen